Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. Folks, I got my good friend Andy Parker again on here. We were talking about the the, the vocalization that we like to use and the and it's the buttons that we like to push on our waterfowl. And uh, Andy has been nice enough to come back, and we're going to do some on big game. Andy is is the big game uh, professional if of uh, between the moose and mule deer and elk and and uh, he has his own uh, things he likes to do and his explanation is like he likes to call it is pushing that button so andy parker happy new year brother and happy new year to you george i appreciate you kind of invite me back again it's uh well your it's wife super fun yeah your wife paid me so anyway <laughs> Well, okay. That's um, <laughs> no, I'm glad to have you back. And you know what? Uh, I just love the uh, your terminology and how you explain things. But when you were using the terminology of you know finding that button to push, and that's exactly you know that is the best explanation or terminology that I could think of. That you know when I'm talking about you know what I'm. What do you say to a goose? Or guys, how many times do guys come up in a show and say, you know, what do you say to a goose? And what do you say to a duck? Or what do you say to a turkey? You know, and it's like, well, it depends on the situation. And, you know, what's what's going on? What's he doing? And, you know, are you reading the bird? Are you, you know, so there's so much that goes through. I believe there's a limited vocabulary and, and it hits that right button. But, you know, even that right button to me is something that should be done at the right situation. And uh, you... Uh, wanted to get back on the big game here the first of the year but you you really wanted to start off here with the moose and mule deer and i and i take it that moose has kind of been your specialty uh starting out there is that correct yeah um moose chiris moose kind of put me on the map you know up in the northern end of the state we just we don't have the big numbers of giant mule deer and the big numbers of giant elk that they do kind of in central and south. And, you know, I'm not putting my name up there with the top outfitters. I've, I've had the pleasure to work with, with the top mule deer guide on the planet, in my opinion, and probably everybody else's too. And uh, I've got to work with him doing moose hunts, doing uh, governor's tags and some of these other moose hunts around because, because of this opportunity um, that I created for myself by, by calling these big gyrus moose. Uh, um, this topography up here in, in northern Utah is, at least in the, in the unit that I kind of made, made a name for myself uh, behind the house, was, uh, is really thick country. Uh, vast, I think, this unit's over a million acres, and a, a lot of it is heavily forested. So your glassing opportunities for, for Shira Smooths are, are limited. Um, and so I kind of, I watched some, some videos and when I was starting out. And I remember the first moose hunt I did. And I was like, you know, I think I can maybe call these bulls. And um, it worked out. Like the second moose hunt I did, I called in a freaking giant bull, uh, a 173-inch moose for a hunter. And, and we ended up killing it. Uh, and that kind of sent me on this path to a lot of the doors that opened up for me as far as being, you know, mentioned in the same breath as some of these big outfitters that we have around here in Utah. Um, Before our listeners, Andy, 
could you do an, uh, explain what the Charis moose? I know we have uh, Canadian and the Canada moose, Alaskan moose, the Yukon. Uh, what is the Charis? It's a subspecies, and they call uh, some of them, some people call them a Wyoming moose, um, Charis moose. And I sent you some pictures, and you know when you when we did the original podcast, I, I sent you some pictures of some just absolute giant moose, and you didn't did put those up and, and I, I kind of want to was like, wow, I wonder why you didn't put those up. But I think a lot of people who, who look at these pictures of these Shires moose, uh, they look at them and go, you know, that's, that looks like a pretty nice moose, you know, whatever. But if it looks anything like a Yukon moose or, or a Canadian moose, it's giant. Uh, a minimum book on these things is, is 155 inches. And, and so these are, you know, 20 points over minimum book, which, and you think about a whitetail, you know, those are some serious big, big animals. Um, and me being pretty good at this is what got me kind of in with, with some of the top outfitters doing these moose hunts for some of these top guys. Uh, it got me on the board of directors for the Utah Guys and Outfitter Association back in the day, too. That's the, That was the reason I, I got hooked up with those guys and got invited to be a part of those a part of that new legislation that we were lurking on to, to have a licensing procedure for our guys and outfitters. So all that probably came, even though I was doing the first big game hunt that I ever did was, was an elk hunt back when I was 18. So um, I started with elk, but the moose opened up a ton of doors. So yeah, I'd like to kind of get into my routine and my process of, of finding these big moose. Uh, if you want That'd be great. Absolutely. So, it, it, not just antler or body size; they're a little bit smaller too. Yeah, their body sizes. Never seen a Yukon or a Canada Canadian moose up close. So, but I I have heard that they're you know quite a bit bigger. Both of them. I know the Yukons are way bigger body size wise, and I think the further north you get on any subspecies. Uh, the larger they get just because they've got to deal with winter and body size does help with. And I, just with like them. with the whitetail, I, I mean, it's what we found in, in the northern part of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula. Absolutely. You know, you had the yeah. bigger the bigger deer and whether the strain was different or not, there's just it's a survival of the fittest. So the yep. weak and the small, you know, get killed off. So basically you just have it's the strong that survive. And, uh, you know, they make it through in the deep snow and the longer legs, the taller deer and, you know, and all that other stuff. So it you just inherently become, you know, you have a, a genetically um, modified, uh, a better whitetail, you know, that it's, and imagine with, like you said, and you'll find with the whitetails more in the southern states, the smaller body size they get. And they don't tend to, like you said, with a Texas whitetail, you know, you got an 80 pound deer and you put a 120 inch rack, it looks like a 200 inch Midwest whitetail. <laughs> Certainly does. Certainly does. But, um, the, uh, the moose out here, the Shires moose out here has, have a, seem to have a darker coat than the Yukon moose, just judging by pictures. Again, I'm, I've never been out there hunting them. So um, the thing that kind of sets Shires moose apart from these other moose is they're once in a lifetime, these tags. And you can bypass that by purchasing a conservation tag. In a lot of these units, there's conservation tags. So you could technically, I guess, buy several of these tags and, and go moose hunting in Utah more than once. But for the most part, 
you're dealing with uh, once in a lifetime. So people don't put in the time to be proficient at calling. Uh, Ninety, I'd say, ninety-five percent of the hunters that come up and, and draw a, a Shiras moose tag don't aren't proficient or don't even consider calling, and, and so that's been my huge weapon, uh, George, in finding these bulls in these heavily forested areas with this topography up here has got there's forest service and and blm and state ground and tons of private and there's access everywhere so having a route in mind and calling is just it's a game changer it absolutely sets you apart on the number of bulls you see every day uh is 100 percent in my mind calling uh, and most people don't do it, so it's it's a it's a great trick. And it, it, people were just, how are you killing these bulls every year? These giant bulls every year. And I was calling them in, and it's super fun, man. I'll tell you what, it is. It's a you think elk hunting's cool when you get a bull moose coming. It is, it's impressive. That's all I can say. I I know why Shocky likes those things so much now. There, the vocalization here is it more limited than what an elk is? I mean, I'll tell you what, when I was out there with Richard and Ray Brand a few years back, and uh, I think Pat Maddock came up uh, on the mountains there, and I got to stay, like I said, just a few days. It was a public hunting, um, there was pressure from people and stuff, um, but I'll never forget hearing the first elk bugle. I mean, it would made the hair in my neck stand up. It, it was turkey <laughs> hunting. On, oh, it's turkey moose, hunting on steroids, man. Yeah, the moose are way. It's a, it's a guttural sound, and I'll I'll do a whole bunch of it when we get to kind of the calling part of this. But uh, um, there's a cow noise and there's a bull noise, and the cow noise seems to be effective in my mind. Limited. Um, the bull grunt is is the is the button for sure uh with moose and so what they do when the rut starts and it usually starts at mm, middle of september with the first really cold snap and it goes into mid-october sometimes to the end um and catching that rut is clutch so a lot of times you'll go out and you you, you just won't call it anything and then three days later you're you call it six ten whatever it is, but, uh, just seeing multiple bulls and dragging these bulls out of this heavy timber is, is the only way you see, see these, these numbers that you need to see to, to get a big one. There's just so few big ones lurking around in those woods that the really big moose are just, they usually have a weak antler or they just, uh, the genetics are weird and they just, I don't know what to say. There's just not a lot of giant ones up there. You got to weed through a bunch of them, or you got to get super lucky. And and I certainly have gotten lucky more than once. Um, but what I do, um, you can hunt all day, which is wonderful. So we'll start in the morning on a high spot uh, and glass. Uh, but I'm calling at the same time I'm glassing. Uh, this last moose we got two years ago, a good friend of mine drew a tag, and I was on top of this big peak and. And there was four or five of us up there, and we'd, we'd spread out across this knob, and we were looking in all different directions. And I, I'd been calling for, I'm guessing, 
close to an hour and one of the guys come running up over the hill and said hey I, I i can see a cow across this canyon so i went over and looked at it she was a cow by herself and that's usually a pretty good sign that there's a bull kicking around there um didn't have a calf so we got in the truck to go over there and do some calling and uh man we just crested over the first hill and there's this bull standing in the middle of the road and he was a nice one uh not big enough for a gun he was in the 140 class but but eric had a had a bow with him and and uh so this this moose ran into this group of trees and we just drove past him and and parked the truck and got out and as soon as i started calling again this bull just he came right into 15 yards and, and we got him with a bow but um this bull had been coming the whole time i'm totally convinced of that because he he'd come out of this canyon that we'd seen lots of bulls in in the past and he was just working his way up the road to me in fact if we would have just stayed for another 15 minutes probably or 10 minutes he probably would have just crested over the hill and we would, i don't know kind of fire drill but anyway that's how i do it i just i i, I run a circuit all day long because you can call these bulls in all day long and when they get in the rut they just wander miles they'll they'll cover 10 15 miles in a day so you're just almost never seeing unless he's tending a cow and waiting um you're basically if you see a bull you'll never see him again seriously uh, yeah you see a bull two miles away going into some timber and and you just never see him again I, i've physically watched moose cover five miles in 20 minutes they just they're they're moving really quick and they just up and over the next hill and up over the next hill and then you look and they're three canyons away and you're, that's the same bull that I saw 20 minutes ago it's just amazing how much ground they cover so so that makes it difficult to scout them for one thing scout how would oh, you scout an area knowing that it just you're you know they're not really staying there I mean so that if there's a prime food they don't stay for the food I mean what's on his mind for him to take off and and he's going that yes. far. <laughs> Sex. sex. He's his whole goal is to just get as many cows bred as he can get, and uh, it's unbelievable how far they'll come. And we have a lot of adjacent units. We got the Ogden and the, the Weaver Morgan and the Cash, all kind of touching each other. And and some of these places have some private property that nobody gets to hunt or whatever. And and these bulls, when they start rutting, man, you don't know where they're coming from, what you're going to see. And so a lot of the my buddy had a place that that had like i'm guessing close to a dozen cows on it uh some private property and uh that place was a bull magnet man i mean you could go up there five days in a row and see every day different bulls uh so they're just coming and going looking looking for love and and covering that ground and, and using that call was was and still is just it's massive i've called every single big bull that i've killed guiding i've called in and that is uh that's pretty impressive in my mind so yeah we've seen we've seen some of them you know like hey there's a big bull over there two miles away and we roll over there and, and uh call him up but uh sometimes you know so, so the spotting does obviously play a role in that but a lot of the really big bulls that i've called and we just did not know they were there and all of a sudden boom he's in your face and it, it's it's very exciting wow. um, so i'll go through this this routine and there it's a guttural noise and it's you just have to practice and if you don't reach this kind of guttural 
how to explain it. You'll I'll, if you don't achieve that, it, it's not as effective. So I'll run through some bull noise. Are you ready? Yep. That's it. There's no cadence change. That's what they do, and it sounds. I'm not going to say identical, but very close to that. Oh, absolutely. It comes, from, it comes from down deep, and it, it kind of has a oof at the, at the last, and that seems to be, that part of it seems to be very, very crucial in my mind. And I'll cut my hands and just bellow down into these canyons. Um, the cow calls are kind of a... That's a a basic cow call that I do and, and I'll mix that in um, with those with those bull calls but the bull call is is what is the button for sure and we had a bull that was tanding three cows and I had a I had an older gentleman that just absolutely could not get up to the top of this mountain these bulls were well this bull and these these three cows were I'm guessing a thousand yards up on top of this ridge and there was a there was a four-wheeler road that kind of cut across this ridge midway and as close as we could get was probably 800 he wasn't making that shot so um i had pat with me that day and and he had one of those i had a montana decoy one of those little silhouettes and uh i got down where i thought we could get a shot at this bull where i thought he would come and then i had pat go up and down the road with the Montana decoy making cow calls. And I stayed on the bull call in the timber, uh, just grunting. And he left those cows. He was so convinced that he was missing out on something. He left those cows and we got him, George. Uh, he had three real cows with him and we called that bull in and killed him. And, uh, it was, it was way cool. I was super proud of myself on that deal. Was it, uh, now, I've never heard now with elk, you'll, you'll hear the cow calling and, and, and stuff like that is, uh, and when I've watched anything on TV with about, with the moose hunting, you, you just barely hear what that, that you're talking about and that, yeah. It's louder than you think though. It'll, man, I've heard bulls from close to a mile away down in these canyons. It really cared. That sound really carries pretty far. Well, that's what I've heard, seen on you know watching. If I watch a show or something, you'll hear the guys. You'll hear see on video. Maybe it's just the only video the bull coming in. I've never heard on a hunting show a cow. I've heard guys do it, but I've never heard a, a cow. You know anybody recording a cow and doing that that whine? I've only heard it. I've only heard it myself about five times. Uh, so I don't hear it a lot either, and that's why I don't use a ton of it be honest with you the, yeah. the button for sure is that bull grunt they do it and when they're running they're doing it 24 7 uh they're just when they're walking around you can just see their head just going up and down when they're just they're just they're in that lovesick rut mode and they're just head down and what they do is they they, they travel from drainage to drainage uh looking for cows and i i put out a lot of trail cameras back in the day when they were legal and and uh I really kind of found these where the cows were hanging out. Uh, and they like that topography of uh, beaver ponds, willows, um, little creek bottoms, ponds, bottom of canyons, water associated for sure. So I am trying to call into those basins where I think 
I've seen cows before. I think maybe there's a bull tent in a cow or whatever. Um, and it takes all day to, to bite off just a piece of this country. Um, you're just driving, stop and drive and stop and drive and stop. And in some days you don't hear any. And then, you know, some days it's just right out of the gate. Boom, you call a bull up. And then next canyon, you call another bull up. And, and uh, that's what it takes to kill these really big ones. You just have to weed through truckloads of small ones to, or you got to get really lucky. And uh, like I said, that's happened to me more than once. So I've heard guys say on some of the hunting shows that you could call a bull and it might take hours for him to come. And I, is that really true? Or is that just a bunch? Oh man, I called one from the top of Willard Peak. And I know you don't know where that is, but he was down almost in the town of Perry. He was way in, I mean, at least a mile down there, maybe a mile and a half down there. We could see some flash of antlers and that boy, he heard me and he went all the way to the top and ended up at 150 yards and we didn't shoot him on that hunt. He was just a little, he was close, but not quite big enough. Uh, but he had to have come oh, a mile and a half. Well, how do, how do you know how long to stay then? Well, that's a problem for me. I get a little ass in my pants. And that goes back to that story that Bully killed uh, two seasons ago with the, that Eric killed with his, with his bow. Um, had we stayed a little bit longer, we probably would have had him but I was I was in a bad spot. I was looking in another spot, uh, but I was calling into this this little side canyon. So he may have saw the trucks before he before we. I don't know. It is what it is. We ended up getting him. But um, had we stayed a little longer, I I can pretty much guarantee he would have been at the truck. <laughs> Are they? Uh, is their eyesight good, or is it more of their sense of smell or hearing? What is? They it? just are dumb when you fool them. They just don't care. They really don't. I, I just, I don't even know what the wind was doing on this one. He ended up being it. And he came in, he was at 15 yards, and he was he was facing us, dead chest on, and there was just no shot. And I was not in a good spot because he came in so fast. I was in behind a skinny aspen tree with my hand over my face just so he didn't make eye contact with me. And he stood there and just gave us the stare down for, I'm guessing, a few minutes, maybe three or four minutes. It was nerve-wracking and then he turned to go and turned broadside and then i grunted at him and he, he just froze and looked over and then swack um but it was a wow yeah eric was like holy crap dude and there was a bunch of us and they were you know maybe i think it was five or six of us and they were you know maybe 15 feet behind us all hunkered down the tree so everybody got to see this whole show it was uh it was it was pretty impressive to be honest with you george uh, excitement factor of 100. <laughs> so let's put it this way. So say it's post rut. Um, how would you hunt them? Post rut, the season's over. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, the season is like it starts right at the first of the rut and just goes right through it. So they're pretty much rutting the entire season. Gotcha. So it's it's a calling game in my mind. You know, and that's kind of how I got hooked up with Tori was. He was doing most of the governor's tags, and uh, he kind of knew I was, you know, killing these these bigger bulls up in this really tough unit, and he kind of wanted to see what I was doing, and so I got to go on some really cool hunts with some really amazing hunters that were paying a lot of money. Um, so anyway, that that's kind of what propelled me into into you know a little bit sure. more of a limelight, so to speak, on on being a big game guy. Because I don't know if you think about Utah, but we have. 
the best elk guide, the best mule deer guide, arguably some of the best sheep guys uh, in the state. It's just got a lot of ringers uh, for really big, big outfitters. And uh, so having my name even mentioned is, is, uh, is kind of nice, but it is what it is. So walking in an area, Andy, if you go glass and I'm going to go check out, I'm going to do some sky- you know, with whitetail scouting is very important. Uh, you know, number one is learning the lay of the land, but also the patterns and everything. Bet we, you know, we try to uh, classify what is a bedding area, the feeding area, hunt between A and B, and 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 catch in between there and and stuff. And um, but it sounds like to me, I mean, I could drive and and start the season going in an area and find rubs. Uh, I I I don't think moose scrape like whitetails do they? They don't make scrapes or anything, do they? Yeah, they rub on they rub the velvet off their horns and they get pretty they get pretty active. But it's kind of hard to tell. We've got so many elk and so many mule deer up in the same woods. It's you know finding a rub is is inconsequential data. In fact, to be honest with you, George, I don't even scout for moose anymore. That's what I'm I saying. Just, thinking, yeah. I don't. It's a it, it actually hurts you because the worst thing you can do is find a moose and bump him out of there. I have heard so many guys that put all their eggs. I saw this bull. I've got trail cameras in this bull that's hanging out in this Canyon and they spend the whole hunt in there and they never see it because it's five miles away. Chasing, chasing cows. You've just, you cannot. Yeah. It's just, it's bad business to, to do a too much scouting in my mind. I, I just don't even do it at all. I just started on these places that we've always seen big ones and uh people are very friendly when you're out there's always a hunt going on there's either a, a an elk hunt or a mule deer hunt or you're running into hunters 24 7 on and hey you seen any moves i i absolutely stop everybody because i have got more than one like yeah dude my friend saw this bull right over this hill this morning and and a lot of guys will just take you over because, you know, you run into people in the middle of the day on their ATVs or trucks or whatever. And, and uh, hey, I saw a bull over here. And I, this one guy said, yeah, let me go over with you. And he took us over and he said he's down and he was down in those aspens down there. And I started calling and this bull came in immediately. Just as soon as I called, he started grunting and this bull came out of the trees and we shot him. And I looked over at that guy, and he was just, his mouth was open. He was like, dude, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. He actually helped us pack it out the whole nine yards. So Wow. Uh, that was yeah, it definitely. Was, he was just a mule deer hunter that was just being a good Samaritan. It was really nice. But if, he, if people don't have a tag, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty cool about sharing information in my Absolutely. mind. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime tag. And, and, and so is that only for resident hunters? There's no non- <laughs> Nope, there's a non-resident pool as well, um, and then there's conservation tags. So they yeah. they lottery auction these conservation tags off at, at Mule Deer Foundation, Elk Foundation, uh, Sports Social Fish and Wildlife Banquets, and and uh, if you've got some deep pockets, you can just you know get a guy to give you a ceiling and you go bid on the tag for him, and you can bypass that draw. But they're you know they're expensive. Eight thousand was about where when I was guiding the light, eight thousand was about. But now they're way more, and then the governor's tag usually starts around thirty and goes up from there. Wow! Didn't so, uh, Jim Shockey have the world record Charis moose? Oh, uh, he did. It's gone now. Um, Tori's actually broke it twice. So, um, 
one of the bulls I actually kind of located for him. That was kind of one of the guys reached out to me and said, Hey, I got this moose and ended up sending the video over and hooked those guys up and they went up and got it. But, um, yeah, he had it for a while, but it's, as far as I know, it's been broken twice. So, well, let's go to a second animal that you love to hunt. And, and we, we as through our conversations talking about, um, whitetail and the and vocalization that we do for that and what i like to do and stuff using you were talking about mule deer it's a limited button but a mule deer buck it definitely has a button do you want to yes, get it does and it's 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 a weird button and it's kind of a oh i screwed up button um so i'll go through that uh it's a fawn it's a basically a fawn in distress call and so if you're if your movers from a to b uh, you're going from one cane to the next and you crest out and you put up a buck uh, and he's running away, you can get him to stop. But the button that I think I want to go over is this this topography out here. If anybody's listening that hunts heavily, uh, there's a tree out here called a juniper tree. A lot of people call them cedars. Uh, right. Yeah. Juniper. Yeah, juniper's... Thick juniper trees in steep country are a nightmare to hunt um, because you cannot see anything on the side of the hill you're hunting. So just imagine, I'll tell this story, just imagine you're gripping a baseball in your fist and you're putting the baseball on the table and you look at your fingers, uh, this, this piece of real estate that we've really found some big bucks in, we call the fingers. So we went up this, we go up this canyon, say between the index finger and the thumb uh, that's open, and we get up to the top of the knuckles. And this is where you split up. So I will go down the top of the ridge on the middle finger knuckle, and your partner will go down the ring finger knuckle. And you walk down the top of the ridge, and you're hunting. The only way you can do it is hunt downhill. Um, so the side of the hill that you're on, you really can't see anything on. But your friend who's on the next hillside, the next ridge over, is looking back your direction and can see a lot on your side. And then you can see on his side. So if there's three of you, you can cover four canyons. Um, and when those big mule deer get in those, in those juniper, those thick juniper, uh, in those thick junipers and those tight canyons, you're just, there's no spot stock option. There's just, it isn't there. You just can't see uh, this one particular place that these really big bucks got into. You just can't see in there. You can see a little from the bottom and a little from the top, but those deer know exactly where they want to be, which is right in the middle. And they're anchored at daybreak. They're just not moving. So you're basically getting those deer moving by either spooking them with your wind or your your friends spooking them with the wind or they hear you and so i'll go through the story with owen and we we were hunting this thing called the fingers and i was on the middle knuckle middle finger knuckle and we just split up is that a bad thing to be on the middle finger (laughs) today it was a good thing (laughs) he went down the reef the ring finger i'm just trying to give people kind of a visual of what these sure is absolutely like, you, you can't like i said you can't see all this topography from the bottom and you, you really can't see anything from the top so you're just limited this is the only style of hunting you can do to, to get these deer up and moving 
And so we had just split up. I mean, we were, I could see him across the canyon. These things are maybe 300 yards across from, from ridge top to ridge top. And then the bottoms are maybe 150 yards down below you. And uh, I see movement down below Owen on his side. And, and I can tell right away, <laughs> this is a buck. Uh, so I blow this call, and it's called a. And this is a deer stopper from you know decoys. I, I don't even know if they still make these things. I've had this thing forever. Uh, I blow this fawn bleep at this call, at this deer, and he stops. Uh, and he, he looks at me, and then he knows there's something up above him that spooked him. It's either he got he winded Owen, or he heard him, or whatever. And he, now he's in. I don't know if you've hunted mule deer, they're in. The, they get in the statue mode where they're like, okay. I'm just not going to move, and I'm I'm going to see what happens. Just I, he couldn't see where I was at because I was I was in the I just came around the corner from a juniper tree, and, and I did this thing, and I'll do it now. It's kind of a I did a couple of those, and he he hit the brakes. Uh, he was coming towards me, but he would I would have never been able to see him once he got in the bottom. So he stopped in this opening, he looked back at Owen, and I got time to put my bipod legs down. And, and uh, man, when I put that deer in my scope, I was like, whoa. Uh, I, you know, I've seen some really big deer in my time. This one was, this is the biggest deer I had ever had in my, like, in a hunting situation where I wasn't guiding. This was my deer, and it was, it was, it was big. It was, I don't know, 10 plus on each side, you know, 220, 230 type of deer. Uh, way past the years. This is a, this is a stud, dude. And, uh, I put my bipod legs down in the steers. I didn't have a range finder, but he's under 200. You know, it's a chip shot. And uh, I ended up missing that deer five times, dude. And uh, it's embarrassing, but uh, I don't know where I shot. I think I just shot through his rack or something. <laughs> Anyway, he went he went to the bottom of the canyon and came up my side and Owen got a three or four cracks out of two running through the trees, but uh we ended up we didn't get that deer. Uh but the technique worked in that situation. Um so that's kind of a cool story. Kind of a story about me being a moron and having buck fever so bad that I just I don't I honestly I don't know what I did, George. I I don't even remember pulling the trigger. I just—it was such a big deer. I just fell apart. Yeah, and that happens. I mean, yeah, it's funny when we talked about we, we, we you and I had discussed this situation or this story you were talking about before, as in the last podcast of the waterfowl when we were discussing the big game. But um, it was funny because you were talking about this button, and then I was talking about a button that I had with whitetails. And uh, I said, you know, I don't hear anybody uh, ever speak of it. I never hear anybody use it on a, on a video or anything like that. But it, I use it probably more. I'll use it 90% more than I will a, a tending grunt um, that you see 90% of the people do. You know, they'll grab a grunt call them, bah, 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 and they'll do that. And it's a tending grunt. And, uh, you know, on a, on a deer, and I was telling you, you know, it's all based on and maturity, the age structure of an animal. You know, and so if I want to, I'm trying to hunt mature animals. So I'm looking at it. You know, what am I going to go after? You know, for that age structure and tending grunts. When you get it to me and a whitetail, it could be three to four years and older. 
attending grunt, if you ever watch a, a, a buck, you'll look out there and hear that bat, bat, bat. And that tail is, his head is down, tail is up, but he's moving. Or he'll, he'll be right behind a doe. And but what I'm saying, every every step he's making that grunt, and it's usually he's moving. And when you get that, you, they see that buck, and oh, they're gonna grunt. Especially, they're like elk, they're and a, and a turkey. They're uncanny to come to that right spot and look up your tree to pinpoint the the exact sound where it's coming from. And uh, so you hit that tending grunt, and the buck looks out there, and he sees, wow, I don't see anything moving. And you take a mature animal. I don't think their thought process. I just think that they've been conditioned, that they've experienced so many things that their defense mechanism kicks in without even a thought process. And yeah, so, and I think that's that's the weird part with mule deer is it, it it's basically to use this technique. I think if you went up to the top of the mountain, and I hope somebody doesn't try this, start blowing a fawning distress call and expect to see a mule deer come running over the hill. I think you're going to be successful. <laughs> pretty poor but my point was you know a lot of people just don't think you could you could make a vocalization on mule deer um but you can in a situation get yourself a shot when maybe you wouldn't have or in a situation where we're hunting these these heavily juniper covered you can you can hunt a piece of property uh public or private or whatever that normally people just they just feel like it's just there's no chance to kill a deer in there and trust me i've done this a bunch on the fingers and we've seen some giant bucks in there over the past um but we haven't killed very many so this is not a high success rate doing this because most of the time they're running or they're stopping in that stuff is really really thick and really hard to hunt but it's it's fun certainly uh it's exciting as heck because you just never know especially when you have three guys um you can you can get into some gear and they're running from your hillside to the next and then you get a shoot out of them and your buddy's shooting at them and and uh, we kill some nice bucks doing it uh but it's not it's not a very effective method i want to just make sure people understand that this is just a, a way to hunt some certain country that you would otherwise probably pass up sure uh it's a way to stop a deer that you've you've made a bunger on you know he came up over a hill and you skyline and a deer saw you and now he's running and, and you're you're ready for a shot and your buddy blows this and he, he puts on the brakes and and uh you get a standing shot um i it's agree a difference maker. it's a difference maker you can you know kill a deer that you otherwise would have saw run over the hill so and you know what with me it's it's about you know if you started recording and plotting the reactions that we that you had again you know with the with bucks that I've come encountered in in the odd years of hunting um you know you, you you've always I've always been careful not to overdo something but when you're sitting there in the fawn bleed one thing about a fawn bleed fawn bleed is something that's totally natural in the woods something that they do constantly that's things that I've seen but the neat thing about it it, it, it is usually a fawn bleat and this fawn distress and the fawn, you know, is usually it, it encounters during the breeding season with whitetails. And one reason I'm saying that is usually when, you know, that doe, she'll hold those fawns with her until she's getting close to be bred. And when that buck comes in, that buck runs those, those fawns right off. He's not going to sit here and he doesn't want her worried about tending them, that he's worried about the, her tending him. And uh, so yeah. he'll run those fawns right off. And 
I'll use that as is is if I see a whitetail, if I see a buck, I'm not gonna like you said sit in the woods and just start blowing it. But if I see a buck out there, and I pretty much know that I've got a good wind advantage, what I found with that fawn bleat, number one, it carries so far the high pitch will just carry that sound. But what I've done, and, and this usually is what I'm talking deer that are three years and older. But I'll hit that fawn bleat and stop them. And they'll just, boom, catch that. And usually they're walking. They're like that moose covering ground looking for receptive does. And um, all of a sudden he'll hear that. And then I'll wait and wait. And he's looking my way. And as soon as he looks forward to get his attention back, where, okay, I'm, where was I going? I hit it three times in a row. Meh, meh, meh. And that, I'm telling you, 90% of the time, that buck will just turn his head and start on a trot coming my way. I've killed, and it's like 50-50. I didn't get the clear shot, and I never got winded, just didn't get a clear shot, or I did get the clear shot and killed the deer. But they've come in, it's just, you know, and it's normally like they're not looking um, or trying to come in with their nose or anything. They're looking for that fawn. They come in. They heard the fawn, but it's like they look past me. They're looking for that, you know, doe or that buck. They figure that there's a buck. It's got a doe in heat, and he's coming yeah. in, and he's going to interrupt that. You know, he's either going to interrupt or to get his buck kicked. But I've, uh, like you said, that is a button pusher. Um, you know, it, it's it amazing. It doesn't work every time, but. Hey, got, I, my opinion, if you've got a mule that's up on his feet and he knows you're there, you, you know, you got nothing to lose. you got nothing to lose. That's the same way, you know, whitetail and all that. But uh, yeah. what a great, uh, some great uh, advice there, Andy, and, and um, especially with the mule deer. And it just, it's funny, kind of, it's funny that the mule deer and whitetail, they're, they're different species, but they still, the buck and, and the behavioral pattern, you know, uh, sex-oriented and, 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 correlating that fawn bleat with the doe and and then with her being in heat but and maybe another buck i mean it all the reason i said it works so good because it's all it's true it's what happens out in the woods yeah they encounter this all the time they hear they're seeing it and, it, and it's about you know taking every opportunity advantage of an opportunity you know they hear yeah. that you know and that again they don't have to think about it they hear that bleat and they automatically know that you know that that fawn is distressed. He wants his mama and she's not there. And yeah, it's uh, funny how they'll just they'll they'll be on a absolute dead trot or a dead the Mueller have the bounce, the little hoppity bounce thing, and they also have a freight train run when they're really spooked. Uh and I'll tell you, man, I've seen more than one just hit the brakes and they'll just it's almost like they're mesmerized for a while you can get a really good shot at him like this you know that giant buck that i missed uh he just froze because he he heard this fawn of distress from from one side of the canyon and he knew there was something on the other and i i just you know it just put the pinch on his brain long enough for me to you know he should have been in my trophy room but you know it's right it's a great story but uh it just goes to show you that, you know, there's almost a button for everything. And I think Mielder have an overlooked button and that, that would be it for me is, is a, is a fawn in distress bleep. And this deer call that I'm looking at right now, it actually says deer stopper on it. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how old this thing's gotta be 30 years old, but I just replaced the little, it's just a bite down call with a rubber band on it. You just, when you, 
know, you just put a new rubber band in it and it's good as new. Well, a quick story, funny story, Andy, back years ago, and I'm not going to tell you how many years, but it, it was years ago, way before videos, way before VHS, uh, we had um, hunting magazines, and I think it was an Outdoor Life magazine, I read an article about a guy who used a fox uh, fawn bleat and to call in these bucks, and uh, I actually took a, the article to our local sporting good place and said, see this, and it gave the exact serial model number of this call, I want to order, and, that, and f- they had some fox squirrel calls, fox has been around, and I ordered this, this fawn bleat from them, and I ended up shooting a buck a week after I got it, um, and then killed a buck again, not, not that much longer after that, but I remember... Um, the guy who was our local archery guy came over to my house. I already heard about it and was wanting to know if he could take the serial number off my call. And I remember a few weeks later, I was down at his place and I went down there to get some arrows or something. And I heard him tell this place was packed. I hear him telling the story about this guy's killed two deer, two bucks with this call. And he was sold them things. <laughs> and, you know, He's trying to empty the shelves off. The oh, yeah. Thing for That's funny. Uh, ball by experience again, but folks, I tell you what, this was another great podcast to put, you know, pushing the button on the big game. We're going to get with An- uh, Andy again next week. We're going to talk about elk and see the button he likes to push with them. Andy, I appreciate your time, but brother, happy new year. And too, um, folks, if you like this, I hope you go subscribe to this podcast and um, anything else you'd like to hear, let me know. And uh, check us out, our calls at Legendary Gear. Go to legendarygearusa.com, or you can just go to your nearest dealer, Captain Bones, Dick's Sporting Goods, Finn Feather and Fur Outfitters, Frank's Great Outdoors, Jay's Sporting Goods, L.L. Bean, Presley Outdoors, Sportsman's Warehouse, Rogers Sporting Goods. Or you can just ask any dealer near you, why aren't they carrying Legendary Gear? Well, folks... As always, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, I'll be out there, rain is shining, all a part of the great design. Bring it on, I can never get enough. Because that's what legends are made of.